on the heels of just going through verses 1 to 3 last week, it was beautiful poetry as Paul extolled that love is first and foremost necessary because you could have the speaking gifts, you could have the spectacular gifts of faith and all knowledge, you could have gifts of sacrifice more than anybody's ever given, even up to giving your own life. But if you lack love, it does nothing for you, it means nothing And uh, you come out in the end, as he says, profiting nothing because it wasn't full of the love of God, love for God, love for others, putting yourself last on the list. And so now kind of leaves the person wondering, okay, what is love then? What am I supposed to do? But more precisely, what does love actually do? Not just what love is, because that kind of leaves it potentially in the abstract versus what's it look like in action when it's doing what it's supposed to do. I, I guess the thought, thinking the difference between of um, what something is versus what it does uh, yesterday at the LR football game, and I was thinking, you know, it's one thing to say the quarterback is fast. It's another thing to say the quarterback ran for a touchdown. Which do you think the coach is more interested in? He, he's actually taking that is fast and doing something with it not running for his life backwards or on his back getting sacked, that speed turns into a score. And really, that's what Paul is doing with these virtues of love now. He's showing they are active. They are the evidence. They are the effects of a person that has the Spirit of God in them by the grace of God, not just using their spiritual gifts, which he said, hey, they're great. Earnestly desire the gifts, where we ended in chapter 12. But then he says, I want to show you a more excellent way that there's, there's something about the virtue of love that if you leave that behind, even in the pursuit in the church of using your gifts, as good as they might be, it's not going to do anything. In fact, it'll work against what God is trying to do to build his church up, not just using gifts, but it says he wants to build the church up in love in Ephesians 4.16, so that we would not just look like Christ by the work we do, and the gifts we use, preaching and evangelizing and serving, but in in the way we do it, in the love that we have. And that's really where we find ourselves today. Uh, So today we'll start by looking at verse 4, and just to put it on the front end, we're only going to get through two of them. We're not even going to cover a verse today. Because love is patient, and I'm presuming upon your patience, slowing it down, but really you'll see later on that these two come as a package right out of the gates. Love is patient and love is kind. I like to call them the non-identical twins, not just because I have some and I need a lot of patience with the one who shall remain nameless, but they do work together and that's what we will see today that's so powerful about love is that even the way Paul presents these There's an arrangement to them. There's a particularity that he wants to show us right out of the gates in the positive. Love is patient and kind before eight characteristics of definition by negation, what love is not. And you see those words and you'll hear them in a moment. And then finishing with five more virtues of love in the positive. So you get 15 total, 15 things that make love the most excellent way. But right out of the gate, the, the first two that come to mind are patience and kindness. So uh, follow along with me as I read the text. I'll read all of four to seven, all 15 petals of this flower that are wonderful before we just look at the first two. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. 
It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. But love rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. May the Word of God do the work of God in our minds and hearts this morning. What's love got to do with it? Got to do with it. Love hurts. Do you believe in life after love? Is this love? What is love? Because we all want to know what love is. Romantic writer Percy Shelley famously stated in arguing for the importance of poets, he said they are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. He would believe that somebody that is uh, eloquent in their speech or quite able to tell you what love is by way of writing about it and turning it into a song, he would say those are the people that move love along in the world because it's something that has to capture you and win you and carry you. Can we find out what true love is by searching for it in a song? Can you take the 1,187 songs that have love in the title, make a playlist, listen to them all in succession, and at the end of it, find yourself any closer to a real definition of love than you were at the beginning? I would imagine you'd be an emotional disaster, man. It'd have you on the highs and the lows. You know how love songs work. If I asked everybody in here this morning to text me your definition or description of love, however you would want to do it, and and then somehow, you know, I could post them all or get some algorithm and try to come up with, is there a common denominator here? I would suggest in a crowd this large, we may not even have two of the same definitions in all the room because there is a subjective value to it in the sense of we're just talking on the abstract level. Or on the emotional level, just the way it makes you feel. But like I said, could you pull it all together and at the end of it actually come away and say, oh, now we know, we know what love is. And even though there's all the different opinions on it, the one thing we do have in common is, I don't know anybody in the world that deep down doesn't love the idea of love. I mean, I know there's bad versions and and Love comes and goes, if you will, if you want to talk about it in the romantic sense. You can have your heart broken. Whatever you want to kind of around the peripheral of love talk about. But if you hit it at the dead center, I think deep down every person loves the idea of love. Whether that is being loved by someone else, knowing they're loved, or showing it to someone else. And that's probably the even deeper problem is that though we in our minds might have an ideal when we talk about love, The reality of our lack thereof is our problem, isn't it? That we know what we we think we know what it is, we hear about it, but then when we look at our own lives, we often find ourselves feeling quite deficient in the way we show love. And can we find the perfect ideal? Well, we can when we look to the Word of God. In fact, we can start with one foundational hope for us this morning is that we have God's absolute truth when it comes to what love is, which is awesome. 
because as, as maybe even already difficult as this subject might start stirring up in you because relationally you're feeling cold to someone right now or someone has been cold towards you or you're just in a rut feeling loveless that um, you could want to shy away today. But the wonderful truth of the Word of God is that it not only is going to expose the problem of our sin, but it actually points us to the solution. And that's where hope is found, isn't it? That I can promise you, no matter how you came in today, even if it was a quiet ride to church, maybe it's been a quiet week even, that God can change you by the work of His Word this morning. Because it's absolutely true And because love is an action, it's actually useful. So let's get down to it today. God's given us this perfect description of love in verse 4. And Paul just brings out the first two qualities of it. Love is patient, love is kind in the positive before he goes to eight things in the negative. And by putting these two together, as I mentioned before, like twins that you don't want to pull apart, that they're just so great together, it seems to me that these two come out of the gate because they... There are two sides of the same coin, if you want to think of it that way, and it's this main idea that when you try to say, how do they match up, how do they correspond, I would say it like this, that when we're talking about love being patient and kind and working together, it's this, love won't give in to doing evil, and love won't give up on doing good. That's the foundational, excellent quality of love this morning, that on one hand, there's always an opportunity in a fallen world For our love to be tested when somebody treats us, or I should say mistreats us, maligns us, snubs us, to stop loving them and want to return their evil with our own. And love won't go there. And on the other hand, in the absence of returning evil and saying, no, love's not going to do that, it actually gives you a positive to do, which is it's going to return something good to that person. And really, those are the words patience and kindness put together. So let's um, start with love is patient. And Paul lists patience first on, on out of the gate. And patience pops up all over the New Testament describing uh, the Christian life. And so it's part of the warp and woof of Christianity to be patient. But what Paul's showing here is patience is an active display of your love. So it's falling underneath love. Love is the premier virtue as the most excellent way when you think of what is love, the first thing Paul, by way of the Holy Spirit inspiring, wants you to know about it is it's patient. It's an action. It does something. And as I said last week, it's it's ethical in nature. So it's not mere sentimentality, emotional feeling, intellectual abstraction. Yeah, we can talk about it and we can feel it and all that, but primarily it's an ethical action we take. It's something we do. So love is is more than just a quality or a trait to admire, but it actually is a priority to pursue in our lives. And that may be the first, like, okay, I needed to remind myself of that this morning. I'm not just to sit here this morning and admire the excellence of love as patient and kind. It's not just for our admiration, It's actually for our personal application to our lives. It's a priority, and it's the top priority to pursue this morning, first on the list. To ask yourself, so who is it? (laughs) Because that's the most personal way. 
Who is it that I've not done this with? Lord, work on my heart this morning. And if you're not already moving in that direction, start to say, who is it, Lord? They may be already in your mind and on your heart. Because that's the way that love wants to move this morning, wants to move you to action. Um, We see that in the gospel. When I say that love is an action and it's moving and it's doing, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he wrote a song that we would listen to and be filled with warm fuzzies and give up our lives because of a really lovely song. No? God so loved the world, he pontificated on the virtues of love and wanted us to study them so deeply that we'd be moved. No. God so loved the world that he what? Sent. He took action or he gave. Or as Romans 5 says, he demonstrated his love. What? By sending his son, giving his son. It's an action. Or the compliment to John 3, 16, 1 John 3, 16. How are we the sinner know, to come to know the love of God for us? 1 John 3, 16 tells us, by this we know love. Jesus laid down his life for us, that we would do the same for others. So even the ethic, the virtue of living out the Christian faith, of loving other people, is still rooted in us, not just admiring love, but actually being able to see the evidence of it in that Jesus Christ made love known to us by laying his life down for us. Love is action. So how does that connect then to Paul saying that love is patient? Where does patience fit in with love? How does it work? Well, let's think about that word. I mean, we don't get a definition here, but that's what you pay me the big bucks to do. So I dig into ancient Greek and I say, what did patience mean in the time of Paul? I mean, we should know that as in we shouldn't naturally know that unless we've studied it. But it was a word, makrothumeia, and I don't say Greek words to try to impress anybody, uh, but it does, that word makrothumeia is a combination word. It's a compound word, and it's putting two ideas together to help us understand patience. So makros is this word for something uh, off in the distance. It's away. And then thumeia, or thumos, is the root word for it. It's the word for the passions. And, and those used in the time of Paul uh, could be passions used for good or passions used for ill. When they're used for ill, this is this connotation of anger. And it was defined back then as a tumultuous welling up of the whole spirit. A mighty emotion which seizes and moves the whole inner man. Now, without me having to say any more about a word 2,000 years ago... You can identify with that, can't you? When you've been angry, when thumos has arisen, isn't it feeling like there's this mighty welling up inside of you in that moment? This this thing in the inner man that just starts churning inside of you that makes you want to tell that person off, cut that person off, whatever it might be. Blow up on somebody. Why? Because this thing just starts welling up inside of you. It's going to blow. What are you going to do about it? That's thumos. But see, he adds that word in front of it that means off in a distance. And now you get what patience is. 
It's that love has the ability, by the Spirit's work in your life as a Christian, to see that anger coming and keep it at a distance. By the Spirit's work, but also your effort. It's the God working in, you working out. But just understanding what that word means, I think, should, should help us to kind of try to get our minds around what patience is like and how love does it. Love can, can see it off in the distance and it can start taking the foot off the gas. That came to mind as I was trying to think of ways to describe this or illustrate it. Um, a friend of mine let me drive his Tesla. You know, those are some of the perks of being a pastor. Hey, you want to drive my Tesla? And um, I was like, I, not really, because I don't want to wreck it. Uh, it's a really nice car, but he was wanting me to try driving it because it, unlike, you know, normal cars that you use the brake, he's like, bro, you don't even have to hit the brakes the whole time you drive it. I'm like, that's not a car. That's just called a liability. You know, um, bad things are going to happen. I need the brakes. He's like, the brakes there, but you know, the genius of the Tesla is it conserves your brakes because to the accelerator, it slows you you take your foot off a little bit and it slows you down. I was like, that sounds pretty amazing. Are you sure you want me to drive? And, um, I think about our struggle with anger in that way. My initial, like, going in the parking lot, I looked like the 16-year-old Adam learning how to drive the first time, like, just speed up, slow down, speed up, pump the brake, giving us whiplash. Because I don't know how to handle it, so I just think it's got to, like, you got to let it go, and then you got to smash it, you know, you got to hit it hard. And patience isn't like that. When you keep it off in the distance, patience is more like uh, a friend of mine who has a Lincoln Continental, he, uh, he's living the good life now. It's the anti-Tesla. It's twice the size, uses 10 times the amount of gasoline, but it is a smooth ride, this old Continental. And um, he was telling me like he could turn on his street and just let that thing coast all the way down to his driveway, not having to hit the brakes. Nobody's getting whiplash because the thing just carries. And, and that's what patience is doing for us when we see off in the distance where we want to stop by it alerts you and allows you to say you know what i'm not gonna have to smash the brakes on right here i can keep that anger if i remember love is a preeminent virtue i can keep that anger off in a distance and when you think about you know i know there's always the unexpected like your neighbor hits the baseball and it breaks your window you can't see that off in a distance but the daily in and out grind that we usually find ourselves getting angry with people in, if you really stop and say, if I'm a Christian and I'm to be defined by my love, I know that coworker is that way every day. So how do I wake up and prepare every day for knowing I need to apply patience today? Whether that's with coworkers, with your kids, with your spouse, love is doing something active. It's not passive. We might think of it as passive, like I just got to try to not get angry. But if you actually think about how we are to be known by our love, love is on the front end going to be prepared to what? Keep anger off in the distance as best we can. That we're not just going to allow ourselves to be surprised again, what, by the same recurring thing that person always does to us? How much of that is now my responsibility to be prepared not to respond in anger? Why? Because I can apply patience which is love in action. So that's kind of the word in and of itself. Um, we also have the example in the Trinity. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all are the model of patience to us. 
First, we see this example in, I mean, you see it in the entire Old Testament of God constantly telling His people, don't do that. And they do it. Stop sinning. And they keep sinning. And His anger can burn. Even in Exodus, we'll look at Exodus 34, 6. But right prior to that, you know what the people did. They were making a golden calf and worshiping it as if they, they forgot the God who just delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, and and God looks down and sees their idolatry and says, let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And Moses, I'll just make of you a great nation. So here's God saying, I can have my anger burn against them. The passions in God, if you want to call them that. But he's not taking action, is he? It wasn't knee-jerk the moment he saw the golden calf being made. He didn't just wipe them out, helps us to understand that there really is reason for God to be angry with his people, but yet when he reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6 and says, I'm the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, keeping it off in the distance. It's there, it exists. Actually, the word for slow to anger in the Hebrew, uh, who tend to want to use concrete terms more than the abstract, is a word that just means uh, long-nosed. Because with a God who is spirit, the genius of the Hebrew language is a lot of times there's anthropomorphic language for God to help describe some of his actions. So when we say God is a God who can save, his arm is not too short, you know, he can't actually reach out and help you. If he has a long nose, and that's what we get the idea of slow to anger, well, think about the last time you really got angry with somebody. Was your face just perfectly peachy or would it start to what? Get flush. And if you have a really short nose, your nose gets red really fast, then along with the rest of your face. So there's this picture now of God being slow to anger in Exodus 34, 6, that the Hebrew people would realize, oh, we worship the God with the long nose that, man, it takes a while for that thing to get red. In fact, it never has. Hasn't. We're still here. So how long is the nose of God before it gets red? And then how quickly ours does it, doesn't it? And God in his brilliance picked a word that would help us make that connection immediately. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote the line that some of you have heard, though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness he grinds all. See, people could presume upon the patience of God and think that just because he hasn't wiped us out yet, humanity or even in our individual lives sinners they didn't just take care of us right away that maybe he's inactive maybe he doesn't care well peter answers that in second peter chapter 3 verse 3 where he says know this this is after christ has come the first time but before he will return know this that in the last days the days that we're in Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and passions and desires, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything goes on just as it was. So rather than sinners realizing the patience of God as an act of his love is holding back his wrath, even though Psalm 711 says he's angry with sin every day. The unbeliever sits there and mocks. And thinks, oh, that, that patience of God, it's doing nothing. It's, he's so apathetic. Maybe he's just indifferent. 
But 2 Peter 3, 9 says, Know this, beloved, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is. here's the reason He hasn't sent the return of His Son in judgment. He's patient toward you. If you meet a person like this, who might want to mock God that way. He's patient towards you, mocker. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's why He delays. Because there's still more to save. Famous agnostic Robert Ingersoll lived in the 1800s, was raised in a Presbyterian home and had qualms with Calvinism and the truths that he was taught and rebelled against them and didn't just end up rebelling. He bought into in the, in the late 1800s through higher criticism of the Bible what was coming out of Germany especially, questioning everything in the Bible. It's an age of, of scientific reason and humanism. And Ingersoll bought in hook, line, and sinker. And he would go around as a, um, a, a, an evangelist for the not trusting in your Bible and saying the whole thing's a farce and God doesn't exist. And uh, he, would, he would travel around and speak at universities and sometimes he would even debate preachers about does God exist? And in his debates, when he would be bringing out why he believed, you know, all of the Pentateuch wasn't really written by Moses or other things about the Bible that he would say uh, we can't trust, one of the things he would do to kind of drive his point home that there is no God and um, I'll prove it to you, he would set a timer for five minutes and he would say, and I'm going to go on mocking God right now. And um, he would. And um, we'll see if he kills me by the end of the five minutes. And if he doesn't, there's your proof. And so he would, he would do this, and um, I guess you know, he was probably quite the orator that maybe with a little bit of dramatic flair as the time would get closer, the mocking would get greater, and even it would say, you know, the reports of this is people would be fainting in their seat at four minutes and 51 seconds, thinking he's nine seconds away from his demise. And he never died in one of these times. And he used that as his gotcha. There's no God, otherwise he would... He would take me up on my challenge. And so one time when he was debating a preacher, uh, that guy came up next and he said, Mr. Ingersoll, do you really feel that you can test and exhaust the eternal patience of God in five minutes? What he was trying to use is evidence against the existence of God. This preacher was wise enough to say, no, you've proved otherwise. That even with you of all people, the fool that says there is no God and shakes his fist at him. He's being patient with you right now. That's the example of God the Father. How about Jesus the Son? Not too far away from 2 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 2, you actually get an example to follow from Christ. Verse 21, you've been called Christian for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, left you an example to follow in his footsteps while being reviled. He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. This is the example of Jesus the Son, that he was mocked, he was reviled, and he, in his patient love for the people in his own time, what? Did not quit doing them good did not act upon evil, but rather used it as an opportunity for us now to look at and see if Christ suffered for us, if he could be patient and endure people maligning him, mocking him, how much more should we, beloved? 
And then finally, God the Holy Spirit is patient. And, and we see this go from something vertical for us to see in God's example of God the Father or God the Son. We actually take this now horizontal, don't we? That we have been given the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Again, the same word we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, that we have the ability to be patient because we have the Spirit of God in us, producing it. The question is, are we submitted? Are we in the flesh? You know, it's interesting because right in Galatians 5, before he lists the fruits of the Spirit there, he talks about walking by the Spirit, fulfilling the law, and you know what he centralizes their problem in? He says, For you were called to freedom, beloved, but not to turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. So even the context of Galatians 5, where we get the command, or not the command, the reality that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, and one of his fruits in our lives is patience, it's still in the context of the church lacking love and being called to love one another. So we have Father, Son, and Spirit both giving us the example of patience and then even the ability to do it. So to land this plane in point number one, the question is, how long-suffering are you? You know, this word in the Bible and even in the context, and Paul used it for patience, was a word that wasn't generally used for patience with um, something outside of your control. As in uh, a trial... Uh, something that doesn't have to do with people. It's just you find yourself in a situation unexpectedly and you're to endure it. There was a different word for that. But anytime this word was used, it was used in the concept, context of personal relationships. And you realize that's the harder of the two. You know, you go to the DMV, ah, especially in California. And no matter when I would go, you just, from far away, you know, love, patience is keeping that anger far away. You just see, the parking lot's full. The line's going to be super long. But in that moment, you just say, you know what? This is just life in a fallen state of California. And I have to be at this DMV. And so does everybody else. So it was one thing to say, you know what? I can endure this situation. It was a whole other thing to finally get to the lady behind the glass in her to just have complete indifference to my plight. And I have all the things I needed, save one. I left it in the car. Can I just, back of the line. Like, no, I, I could be right back. There's people behind you. Now patience is actually dealing with a person. Not just this situation of having to wait. And I can't be mad at everybody else. They need to do what they need to do. But now there's a human on the other side of it. And that's where patience comes in. How am I going to treat this person no matter how they treat me? So that's one part of how love works. Here's where the cool part is for filling in like, okay, Adam, it feels like there's a part of this that's kind of, I just got to be uh, holding something back by the power of the Spirit, um, exercising patient love. But what kind of fills it in? It could seem in some ways I'm just holding back or I'm pushing down and love is doing that. But is there something that can, if you want to look at it this way, fill in the void 
in that moment with working with people, and that's where kindness comes in, the other side of the coin. Because this word love is kind was a word not that just is like be Mr. Nice Guy or Mrs. Nice Gal. Uh, this kindness is a word that meant in its time useful or serviceable in doing good. It's, again, action. Herodotus, who was the first Greek historian in 480 BC, used this word talking about something adapted to an excellent use, serviceable in good. So now do you see how these fit together? In having to deal with a person who may test your patience and you are in love, trying not to lose it, you could feel in some ways maybe helpless in that moment because you're like, well, what am I supposed to be doing other than suppressing sinful rage? Here's a radical idea. Backfilling it in with intentionality. How can I do this person an act of good? I mean, wouldn't that be a radical way to live? Because we might think we're just winning the battle by saying, okay, I'm not going to respond evil for evil. I'm a good Christian. But you put these two words together and Paul would say, that's not far enough. You can go even a step further. Because in love, acting in this moment where, where you want to be filled up with rage and all this whatever stuff, and you say, no, love doesn't do that. Love won't give in to doing evil. Love won't give up on doing good. So what's the good I could do here? What, what's, the, what's the action I could take? And it would be thinking of something, not just uh, like the bumper sticker you see, like random acts of kindness. That's not what this is. This is intentional acts of goodness to that person who's doing you wrong. And, and this is why we have to look to the word of God for an example and say, like, this is out of this world. Nobody's like this. So look at Luke 6. God the Father's like this. Jesus starts with a question. Luke 6:32, "If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them." So he takes that one off the board, doesn't he? If we just go around loving the people that love us, we're just doing what we're really designed to do by God's common grace. So no credit there. Verse 33, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those who you expect to receive from, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners. So what are we to do as Christians? He says, but love your enemies and do good to them and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. And here's the, here's the root of it to produce the fruit of it. You will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind. There's our word. He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So that's how God the Father works. That He's not just patient in His love, withholding the urge to do evil against those who would be ungrateful and evil. He does active good. And then Jesus summarizes in verse 36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. I mean, I read this one this week in the context of what we're talking about. I could just close my Bible at this point, I think, and say, if we could just apply verse 35, that in the absence of doing evil, returning evil for evil in love and saying, my father in heaven is merciful and has been merciful to me. 
And he does it even to those who are his enemies, ungrateful and against him. How I'm to do the same. So that's God the Father. Jesus the Son, Matthew 11.30, we talked about that passage three weeks ago, it might have been. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, or take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That my yoke is easy. The word for easy is actually translated the same word as this word kindness. So think about that for a moment. My yoke is kindness. My yoke is active good, benevolence. How could he say that? Well, when you came to Jesus Christ, it wasn't a neutral move, was it? Like he just like got you back to zero. But yoking up with Jesus Christ and following him, it, it, made, it took you far beyond that, didn't it? That you actually had a positive example to follow. And you were given the spirit that you could actually do it. So his yoke wasn't just neutral. It's actually something that's propelling you forward to what? Kindness. And looking around at the world you're in and saying, I'm, I'm doing good to those around me. Well, that's the example of Jesus. And then, of course, back to the fruits of the Spirit. Kindness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. So you, you put all those together and then we can fulfill the ethical action to make our love evident in acts of kindness. And uh, maybe Colossians 3.12 would be a good verse that actually uh, speaks in the imperative, gives a command. So then, as those who've been chosen of God, that's Christians, holy and beloved, that's your identity. You've been made holy. You are loved. Here's what you're to do. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, second on the list, humility, gentleness, patience. And I told you, if you read down the list, you get to the end. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The question is always, how do you do the putting on thing? And I think it's that language is used in the same way that we would say like, well, hey, like, do you really have to um, like give yourself a, a list of steps in the morning to know how to put clothes on to go out the door? I mean, it's something that the longer you kind of know how humanity works, you just get up and you, you do it. I mean, there is some thought to it. And so he's saying, Christian, Put on these qualities. This is on you. Yes, you have the Holy Spirit in you, but wake up in the morning and just as there is a sense in you, like I, I need to get dressed. I need to put some clothes on. I need to go out the door and, and, and look presentable. Spiritually speaking, that's what we're doing with these virtues. Whether it's patience or kindness, there is, however you want to think about it, in the morning you wake up and you say, this is what I am to do today because this is who I am. I am God's chosen, holy and beloved, and I am to look like Christ in my patience and in my kindness. And here's the wonderful thing. They actually work in harmony with one another. So in saying they're in harmony with one another, is there maybe a passage that then puts these two virtues together right next to each other that kind of drives it all home? Romans 2.4. Do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So when you want to remember how powerful it is for patience and kindness to work together, what do you ultimately need to remember? When you came to Christ, right? I mean, that's what he's jogging the memory of these Christians in Rome. When he's saying, hey, some of you are living in a way right now that it appears maybe you've forgotten how exactly you came into the faith. 
You came into the faith by God being patient with you. That your time wasn't up before it was his time for you. So you came by patience and you came by God's kindness. That that in his grace, he revealed Christ to you in such a way, believer, that you recognize the kindness of God to you. His act of love to you and his son and you were led to repent. If you're not in Christ this morning, and if you've been sitting here listening to the the excellency of the virtue of love and you're seeing that it's rooted in who God is and you're still sitting there perhaps in your unbelief, maybe skeptical, and by God's kindness and patience with you today, He has you here for you to, in this moment, recognize none of this is by accident. And God certainly isn't indifferent towards you this morning. And with all that you've experienced, whether you've gone through hardship, whether your life is in shambles right now, that you could still look up in this moment and see that God loves you. And how do you know He loves you? Because the Word of God tells you He does. It tells you that He sent His only Son to die for you, and that was the greatest act of kindness, of good that's ever been done. And then on the side of your own experience, the fact that you're in here this morning able to hear the gospel proclaimed to you shows that he's been patient with you. But what this verse says is, knowing all of that, would you think lightly of it? I mean, would you sit there and think, well, if he's been patient with me up till now, I guess I have a few more hours or days or weeks or months before I give my life to Christ. I'm going to think about it a little bit. And Christ would call you to come to him right now. Because otherwise you're presuming. You're presuming on the patience of God. His his long suffering. And that that offer of the gospel that's been made clear to you this morning, that it's his son's righteousness that you need, it's not your own. And he needed to die on a cross in your place. Otherwise you will receive the wrath of God that abides on you if you don't believe in his son. And that wrath of God abides on you. It it, it hovers over you right now. But yet it hasn't what? It hasn't come to its fruition. And so you're here under the call of the gospel to give your life to Christ today, to throw yourself upon his righteous merits, to trust in him as your Savior and Lord. Will you do it today? Because the only other option is to go down the path of what Paul warns of here, taking it for granted, presuming upon it. And yet at the same time, I could still say that God is merciful. That even if you are ungrateful in your heart right now to that provision of Jesus Christ, He could still keep working on you. He could still keep chipping away of whatever it is in your heart that's made you hard towards Him. Maybe you think that He has done evil to you. But just ask yourself this question. What evils have you done to Him by ignoring Him? by rejecting him, by running from him, all the while knowing that he gave his son to die in your place. And so you may have some things you don't understand that have happened in your life that you blame God for. But the one thing you can't blame him for that he takes off the table is that he didn't love you. Because in sending his son to die on the cross, he displayed it. He demonstrated it. 
And Christ showed you what love is by giving his own life. Do you believe in faith that he's done that? Do you trust in him with everything there is in you? Then call upon his name right now and be saved. Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and all his goodness and all his kindness and all his patience and enjoy a relationship with him forever. One that you could now see the patience of God and, and say, it's amazing. I never have to worry about his wrath another moment of my life as long as I live because it's been removed. The wrath of God has been removed by the power of the gospel, the work of his son on my behalf. Trust in him today. If you're a Christian in this room, this, this text has a lot for us and the little it did say. Just in those six words, love is patient and love is kind, there's a, probably a list of things that we could think about this morning. And as I thought about them, I, I thought I would categorize a few of them for us, maybe to bring further to our attention. And so I'll give you four, four applications for this as you leave here today as a believer, to take love is patient and love is kind and to put it into action, and surprise, surprise, your first application today is this, make you feel my love. First, love is about doing something. I mean, if you could walk out of here today with nothing on your heart to do, you missed it, believer. And that's not legalism. It's love, because love takes action. And the only thing that would hold us back from putting love into action today is our heart growing cold. And here's the rub. That's the hardest time it is to love, isn't it? When you've grown cold to someone, a spouse, a child, a parent, a sibling, a neighbor, a cousin, a friend, when you've grown cold, the hardest thing there is to do is make that first move back towards them in some action, even to acknowledge them, even to acknowledge them and just open your mouth and say something. Young people, this is for you. If you claim to be a Christian, the first fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life should be love for a sibling in your house. That's going to be the most obvious way your mom or dad will see that you've been changed. This, this sixth grader suddenly loves this fourth grader. What could have changed in their life? Christ changes your life. But that goes for everybody in here. Love is like this, and stealing this from another preacher who said, it's, it's, it's like a muscle that needs worked out. It needs exercised. And the, the more you exercise a muscle, the stronger it gets. The more you don't, it atrophies. Love can do that in our lives. It can atrophy purely by the lack of us doing it. But the hardest part, just like going back to the gym to get those muscles working again, the hardest part was when you've been in a loveless state, when you've grown cold, as Revelation warns the church of a love for Christ that's gone cold, or, or at the end of Ephesians 6, a love that's been corrupted, the hardest thing to do is that first step back in love. Now, you've already seen that God the Father and the Son and the Spirit loves you and empowers you. It's now for you to take this and just do something. Just do something. And it's an action. It's an action. So what is it? It starts by an act. 
That would be my first, make you feel my love. It's something that you can show, you can do. Second, how deep is your love? I know BG fans are like, but is he really meaning to do that? I was in a mood of just getting song titles. How deep is your love? This is a call to examination for the passive Christian. That's an oxymoron. We shouldn't be passive Christians. We should be patient Christians. But see, passivity can masquerade itself as patience. Passivity doesn't require any spiritual effort. It's just purely something you can do by not doing anything. Don't talk, don't blink, don't move. Passive. And some people, as Christians, that's how they've just resigned themselves. I will be a stoic. And I will prove my something by just never responding to what you do. Friends, that is not the spiritual fruit of patience. In, in however it's happened in your life, by becoming passive in, in response to when someone does you ill, it is not doing anything good. Now, you're not making it worse, per se, by adding to it, but you know how hard it is to keep that act up. You keep stuffing it and stuffing it and stuffing it until when? You explode like a volcano on someone. But yet, you might appear to everyone else as a really patient person, when really you've just resigned yourself to being passive, and you've just kind of gotten used to it, and um, that's it. So nobody can say anything, do anything, whatever to incite you. But what this calls you to is active love. Work through the passions in your heart. When, when you've just become passive and say, why is it that I, I feel this way and, and talk to the person about it? Why do I get angry this way? Open up about it. Confess it. Admit to you getting angry. That's the first step towards what? Allowing God to work in your life to get you out of going from passivity to true spiritual patience. Now, on the other side of this, number three, tainted love. Beware of the other end of this, which is somebody that will admit to getting angry, but yet justify it, or at least attempt to justify it, with the um, superficial, sanctimonious statement of, it's righteous anger. And you know what lies against the truth? Your red face. Isn't it kind of God to remind us that being slow to anger should keep the red out of your face? But see, there it is for that person to see. The tone of voice, the, 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 the getting a little bit in your pattern of speech. And they're just sitting there while you try to deny it and say, I'm righteously angry about this. And there's no, no. It's anger, call it what it is. Because if you don't, you are the fool in the Proverbs. 14.29, the quick to anger man is a fool who doesn't have understanding. See, that's the problem with trying to claim in an angry moment that you're not angry by being righteously angry like God, is that you actually don't have the understanding to even make that statement about yourself, according to Proverbs 14.29. So just own it. Rather than just add layers of problem, and now not only does this person have to deal with your righteous anger all the time, they have to deal with you trying to uh, deny it or explain it away, and now you've given them two things to have to be frustrated with you about. Rather than you just own it. And again, same solution to the passive person on the other side. Just get to the heart of why you got angry, 
how that goes against having the Spirit of God in your life. The anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Deal with it. Pray about it. Take it to the Lord. Confess it. That's your way out of it. Passive or aggressive. You know what your way out of it is? Being honest with God and honest with others and seek repentance and forgiveness. Otherwise, you're going to stay the way you are or just get worse. As a believer, you don't want that. Last but not least, love is a wonderful thing. Remember the verses about God's love being patient towards sinners and doing them good and not evil? Love is a wonderful thing because it's a chance for us when we are patient and kind to actually use those virtues as a catalyst to our gospel witness. Where love lands ultimately is that we can actually see that in, in my own life, how God has been patient and kind towards me, I can use that as a catalyst to propel the gospel forward. Because like Paul in 1 Timothy 15, 16, he could say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. Yet for that reason, me being the worst sinner is why I found mercy. So that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Isn't that the most powerful testimony that Paul could see that God was being patient with him as Saul, going to kill Christians, trying to wipe out the way, that that wasn't an act of God being asleep at the wheel or not knowing what was going on. God was actively being patient towards Paul, allowing this to transpire so that one day Paul could write this and say, look, you got somebody trying to make the excuse that there's no way God could save them. Point to your own life. God was patient with me. And God is ongoing and being kind with me. And in the same way he's done that for me, he can do it for you. Picture the scene in heaven when Paul was still Saul and on his way to kill Christians. And the angels are sitting around going, hey, God, do you want one of us to go down and deal with this guy? Just take him out. And God says, no. I'm not going to send somebody down to take him out. I'm going to send somebody down to bring him in. And that was with you, believer. God brought you in rather than put you out. And he wants you to remember that as you would proclaim the gospel with other people. That you could, you could locate the gospel in your own life in such a way you could say, hey, he was patient with me and he was kind to me and he can do the same for you. And in the meantime, I can still be patient with you and I can still be kind to you and I can love you for the sake of you coming to Christ. Love is a wonderful thing that way, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your love, for your grace and kindness in Jesus Christ. We thank you then in the gospel we get for ourselves this morning, reminded of your goodness and your grace and your mercy that carries us along, that, that gives us hope. Lord, that we don't have to stay where we are. No matter how we came in here today, we don't have to leave the same. That just being reminded of how wonderful the quality of love is in action helps us to not give up on doing good and to refrain from doing evil. And that we would do that for your glory, God, and your glory, Christ, because of what you've done for us. So in this time now of communion and remembering, Christ, what you did for us, may it minister to us in, in the way in which we can be convicted of our sin and simultaneously comforted by the grace of God in the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.